<laughs> Tell me about Summer Jam 2001. Crazy. It's live. We the champions. You heard Michael it. Jackson. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> we live. King of rap, the king of pop. Holla. Turned out oh, crazy. Damn. Big event, 20,000. It's we the rock, pop. you bastards. As always, you heard Holla. From Breaking Atoms comes our new original podcast series celebrating the 20th anniversary of Jay-Z's sixth album, The Blueprint. In the second episode, we look at The Blueprint's creation, the marketing strategy ahead of its release, Jay-Z declaring war with Nas and Prodigy on the big stage, and revisit an urban legend that refuses to rest. This is The Ruler's Back. Andrew Barber, founder of Chicago-based media company Fakeshore Drive, once again takes us back to the early 2000s and references some of the newly established rap acts of the time. He also points out that even though Jay-Z may not have been selling as many units as Slim Shady and Pimp Juice, he was still in the conversation regarding influence and impact. That was the year that like Eminem rolled out G12 that summer and Nelly rolled out the St. Lunatics. So they're still going. Like Nelly is still in the mix. Like you're still hearing Eminem all the time. Ja Rule is really starting to emerge as this huge star. And like he's all over. He's starting to become like just nonstop on the radio at this time. You know, Ludacris, he had like area codes. And so those were like the the, the super party records. And I think... You know, Jay had that around that time with I Just Want to Love You. But this is a little later. And then he comes with not a party record. Izzo wasn't like a typical first single at that time. Just Blaze, producer and DJ, reflects on the quick recording process of the blueprint. He recalls Jay-Z receiving beats from Kanye West and then coming to him and asking for more production, noting that he felt inspired. The album wasn't in motion and three days later it was 90% filled. Jay wasn't due to record another album for like another like six months. Because I remember we talked about like a couple of months after the dynasty. He's like, yeah, I think I'm going to start recording around this time. And then he literally just walks into the studio one day. He had just gotten some beats from Ye and it got his mind uh, going. So he comes to the studio. He's like, well, you got some beats. Feel like, you know, I just got this beat, these beats from Ye. I feel like rapping. So at the time, nobody knows what's really happening. You know what I mean? It's just like, Guru gets called in. He kind of caught me off guard. So I just started going through the, through the hard drives. That was Friday. By Sunday night, we had the majority of the album done. After that Sunday night, it was really just a matter of refining what we had. And then a few extra songs getting added in. You know, so like the Trackmasters record wasn't initially there. You know, it wasn't there right away. Um, Ola Jovito wasn't there right away, you know, but they came shortly after. Jameel Guru Keaton, engineer and producer, credits Kanye West as the one who kicked off the album's making, even though nobody knew it at the time. Kanye was the was the person that kicks off the album. Like he would literally do one song, you know, go eat in the front, come back with another idea. He might leave, you know, go to the office, come back with another idea. It was it was one of those times where Jay doesn't really stay super late in the studio, but it was like he was just knocking them out, knocking them out, knocking them out, just one after another. Wayne Hershorn, better known as Pain in the Ass, reloads on his memories from this period. The voice that opened up Jay-Z's debut album feels that the success of the Dynasty project sparked a new fire in Jay-Z creatively. Again, he wasn't supposed to make that album. That after after Rock La Familia, he was done too again. But through the success of um, Parking Lot Pimpin', that kind of led to him doing H to the Izzo. And then H to the Izzo, he performed it at the BET Awards. And it's like, oh, you know what? They're feeling this. I got more in my bag. 
and he came out with a whole album's worth just through the success and, and, and the way they were gravitating towards H to the Izzo. The first single released from the blueprint was Izzo, produced by Kanye West. The song contains a sample of I Want You Back by the Jackson 5. Jay-Z covers everything from childhood memories to manoeuvring through the vulture-like music industry in his verses. Andrew Barber talks about Kanye West not knowing that Izzo was recorded and finished before being premiered at the first ever BET Awards on June 19th, 2001. Kanye did not know that he was going to premiere Izzo at the BET Awards. He didn't even know that song. I don't think he knew that song was done or was going to be a single or going to premiere at the BET Awards. I know that came as a surprise to, to everybody who heard it. In a 2002 interview with MTV, an ecstatic Kanye West recalls seeing the song being performed at the BET Awards. That felt, you know exactly what that felt like. That felt like on five heartbeats. And I wasn't even sure that he was going to do that, so I had no idea. It wasn't even tracked. It was two tracked. It was Pro Tool at the time. He said, yo, I want to do a new song. Ladies and gentlemen, it's all me today. It came on. I was like, oh my God. I think I was on the phone with my girl. And then she just started screaming like on five heartbeats, like, ah! <laughs> After that, man, all kind of phone calls, man, two ways. It was just, it was his own at that point. Kanye recalls the exact moment he played Izzo for Jay-Z and Young Guru at Baseline and how he knew he was about to make it. Basically, he, um, he was about to leave out the room. And he had played the songs. He's like, yo, after this song, Guru, uh, I'm going to the lounge. I was like, yo, I got one beat to play. I got to play you this beat. I got to play you this beat. So then he's like, okay, you know what I'm saying? You did good so far. You know what I'm saying? You gave me six joints so far. That's blazing. So I put it on. They just start bobbing his head to it. Let me give you one of them looks like. <laughs> that's how you know you got a heat rock. Let me give you that right there. <laughs> so then um, maybe about two or three minutes later, he just tapped me on the shoulder. He said, H to the Izzo, V to the Izzo, for shizzle, my diesel used to dribble down the VA. <laughs> so, I, so I went to the bathroom, right? I called my mom and said, Mom, we about to make it. We really gonna make it this time. It's about to be on now. Take me, I'm raising the status quo up. I'm overcharging niggas for what they did to the cold crush. Pay us like you owe us for all the years that you Yemi Abiyade, writer and contributing editor for Trench Magazine, appreciates the significance of Jay-Z dropping legendary names like the Cold Crush Brothers. It's only with age that I start to realise what these things mean. And, you know, the, the, the historical significance of a line like that, Cold Crush, like pioneers. And now he's charging, he's overcharging guys to make up for the disparity that the Cold Crush and others like them went through in that time. Akar Sharma, writer and assistant editor for Hip Hop and More, highlights the OG energy that Jay-Z displayed on Izzo. He also points out how Jay-Z makes his lyrics more relatable and speaks from a position of lived experience to share information. One of my favourite lines on the album is on the last verse of Izzo where he raps, Hove did that so hopefully you won't have to go through that. I mean, specifically there, he's, he's literally talking about selling drugs, but it can kind of be about whatever the listener wants it to be about relative to Jay-Z and his life and career. The fact that he was taking that kind of elder statesman role just five years into his career is really mind-blowing to me. Journalist Bianca Gracie credits Kanye West for helping Jay-Z step out of his creative zone. It was really cool to see Kanye really 
help Jay-Z step out of his element because I don't think anyone would have thought Jay-Z could put out an Izzo. It samples Jackson 5's I Want You Back, but you listening, you wouldn't you wouldn't realize it's the song unless you really, really into it. Um, so I think he does it in a very playful, melodic way. Nicholas Tyrell Scott, UK-based culture writer, shares how the Jackson 5 sample and Izzo spoke to him personally and why black music as a whole is an adventure through time. The sample for me, it just speaks to how hip-hop and wider black genres as well speak to one another. And I think it solidifies to me the trajectory of soul, R&B, funk, and how they interact with hip hop. It just kind of made me realize, you know, wow, we really take music on a journey. Lily Mercer, DJ and presenter, remembers the blueprint as her introduction to Kanye West and laments why she thinks Izzo was such a great choice as a first single. This was the first time I really like took in Kanye production and then like learned who he was. And Kanye as well, like Kanye is so well known for the soul thing, but he's also well known for that kind of sparse drum heavy like on Takeover. So I think it's like a good example of both sides of his sound. But I do think like Izzo, like that's the thing with the actual commercialness of that track, like that came from Kanye's like kind of style. And I think that's why it was such a great lead single. Andrew Barber once again highlights the genius of the Blueprint rollout and the lead up to Jay-Z's infamous Summer Jam 2001 performance. So like Jay was on fire at that moment and that that set it off. And I think that really let off one of the coolest album rollouts. He did that. And then a few weeks later was Summer Jam. June 28th, 2001. Hot 9-7 Summer Jam took place at Nassau Coliseum. With DJ Scratch on the ones and twos and Beanie Siegel and Memphis Bleak as hype men, Jay-Z whittled off a few of his hits. According to Ain't No Jigger, Hove historian, Jay-Z performed his verse for Maya's Best of Me towards the beginning of his set. Jay-Z bellowed, a lot of you cats are yapping, you know what I do. Your boy handles his business before going into his first ever performance of TakeOver. I don't care if you mark deep, I hold triggers to prove. You little fuck, I got money stacks bigger than you. When I was pushing back, The 15,000 strong crowd witnessed a photo of a young prodigy of Mob Deep practicing his dance steps emblazoned on the festival screen. At the end of his acapella, Jay-Z also let off a shot at Nas, which would then become the second verse of Takeover. In an interesting piece of hip-hop history, Michael Jackson also made a special b-boy tinged guest appearance following Jay-Z's performance of Izzo. Young Guru talks about not being aware beforehand that Summer Jam would be the stage where Jay-Z would lay down the gauntlet to Prodigy and Nas. He does, however, note that Jay-Z's sniper scope aimed strictly for the head and his targets were worthy opponents. I didn't know that he was going to set that verse off at Summer Jam. I didn't know that. I had no idea of the prodigy on, on the screen. I had no idea that that was going on. I just knew the music of, of what he was about to do. There's only certain people that's going to get Jay to battle, right? Not, it has to be Knox. It has to be top-tier MC, prodigy. You know what I mean? He's not just going to... As many people as taking shots at him, he'll throw you a couple bars. But 
He's not going to devote like a song or a whole verse to you. Andrew Barber recalls Nas firing back with a stillmatic freestyle and how intriguing it was to hear the tea brewing before the inevitable spill. I think one piece of the puzzle that I think people kind of forget about is that there's the summer jam incident, right? And then he just does that first verse, I think, about Prodigy. And then he says, ask Nas, he don't want to withhold. And I think that is where it stopped. He didn't go any further. And then a couple of weeks later, a week, I don't remember how long, but it was very, it was very soon after the Stillmatic freestyle came out. Hey, yo, nasty Nas, what up? Ain't nothing, a lot of cowards fronting. I hear what you're saying. But yo, this is all love for me, you know? No doubt, smoke on cowards is still mad. Ma, I'm sorry who the fuck I am. I can't. That was a, like, exciting time, right? So the Stillmatic Freestyle comes out, and that's over the pain of full beat, right? And so he starts going at everybody on the rock at that at that point. You know, that, that was a moment when Jay was so big, like, everything he was putting out was, was, was killing. Like, all his songs were hits. He really couldn't miss. It's not like he he went cold. Like he he just continued to to level up. And with his back against the wall, when people kind of started like pressing him, because I feel like he was getting pressed at this time in his career, he just continued to win. He kept putting numbers on the boards and he did it again with this album. Takeover is the blueprint second song, again produced by Kanye West. It samples five to one by the doors, sound of the police by KRS One and includes an interpolation of fame by David Bowie. It also features additional vocals by Josie Scott, former lead singer of the rock band Saliva. On Takeover, Jay-Z calls out his then-rivals Nas and Prodigy of Mob Deep by name with acidic vitriol. Writer Mickey Hellerback revisits Takeover's third verse and mentions Jay-Z's casual but cerebral delivery. When you look at the, dare I say, nonchalant, and dismissive expression and lyrical dissection that that third verse of takeover does. It's not even comparable from someone who has no real nostalgic or in time understanding of what it felt like inherently that feels like way more of a diabolical verse. Yemi Abiade talks about growing to appreciate takeovers, lyrical genius and essay like structure of presenting an argument, stating a case and delivering a crushing closing statement. I think Ether's, I think Ether's a better diss. Takeover is the better song. I will admit that, especially now being twenty nine and really focusing and really studying the lyrics. Takeover is downright disrespectful, man. Like not just to Nas, but to Mob Deep as well, and just to anybody else that felt that they could come at Jay. Like the way he systematically broke down, you know, why he is superior to these guys and embarrassing them on wax as he did. You know, the breakdown of the one hot album every 10 year average. Everything about it was just like incendiary and confrontation, like come at me, bro. Like you ain't ready for this. You ain't in my league sort of thing. And I love that energy from all rappers but when jay does it it just hits a bit different carl lamar hip-hop editor for billboard shares his thoughts on the grandiose nature of jay-z's 2001 summer jam show and making his issues with his foes an embarrassing public spectacle for them he also expands on why he thinks takeover is a better song than nas's response this ether r.i.p prodigy first off but the the fashion that he released that record go to summer jam 30 40 000 people outside you put in the prodigy photo from 88 on the screen 
and just just saying fuck you like that in front of 40,000 people. Bananas. What he did to Nas on that, I will say this today. Takeover is a better record than Ether. I think if you listen to it 20 years later to this day and you dissect it, the bars, the wittiness, Jay got it. I think Nas had won back then that battle be just because of it was like the three, it was like the Cavs Warriors. It was a three-one. You did not expect Nas to pull an upset like that in the in the fashion that he did it. You know, but when you go back and you listen to Takeover, yo, Hove came with some shit. Three verses came through, and it was all haymakers. Not to dismiss Ether, it's the classic. But when you really dissect it, not uh, Jay. Oh, he was in a whole different bag with that man. Jaina Jefferson, writer and multimedia creative speaks of her admiration of Kanye West for switching things up and using rock as a sample source for his production on TakeOver. What I admire so much about his production is that he's able to pull from unlikely sources. Uh, he's really into crate digging and it's very obvious and it's something that I've always admired about him. So you never know what you're going to get when he produces. This song was no different to me. He also just added in a little bit of a David Bowie interpolation. So just thinking about David Bowie helping Jay-Z mock Nas and mock Prodigy is like, oh my God, this is the coolest thing. Lily Mercer highlights the scathing impact of the photo of Prodigy on the Summer Jam screen. She also gets into a mystic Meg bag and suggests that Jay-Z's spiteful shots are the hallmark of a Sagittarius. Rest in peace, Prodigy, first of all, because I hate the fact that I'm even reflecting on these things that are so negative to another top five rapper of mine. But when he said you as a ballerina, I got the pictures I seen you. And like that was just like, I mean, I think only people that were alive at the time will realise how mad that was, that it was like a rapper that was being accused of being a ballerina. <laughs> like even now that makes me laugh. So when he said, you know who, did you know what with you know who, but let's keep that between me and you. And that was like... I mean, at the time it was kind of like a bit mysterious, but now like thinking back on it, it's like, that's shocking that you put that in a song about another artist, like the mother of their child. The Jay-Z that I've come to know and love is very much active on this one. Um, also, Jay-Z's a Sagittarius, which is the same sign as me. His birthday's like three days after mine. Um, and that's why I just find this track hilarious when you think of like the actual, I don't know if anyone listening cares about Zodiacs, but like, if you know anything about Sages, this is like the most Sag energy song I've ever heard. <laughs> Like very petty, very like um, kind of personal attacks, but then also acting like you kind of don't care. Like that's real sad energy. Young Guru issues a challenge to all revisionist historians to step their respective games up. While Takeover versus Ether is still the subject of many heated rap debates, Young Guru reminds us that Super Ugly was a response to Ether. Takeover, I think, retrospectively, gets a bad rap. Because people have revisionist history. So people always go, okay, we did TakeOver, right? TakeOver was released. Three months later, Nas releases Ether. Fuck Jay-Z. What's up, niggas? And hey, yo, I know you ain't talking about me, dog. You? What? We hear Ether that day. Oh, go in the studio. And we do Super Ugly. The next day on the radio, Angie played Super Ugly versus Ether. And it was like, okay, which of those songs is better? And Ether won that day. So somehow in this revisionist history, everybody always goes, yo, Ether beat Takeover. I was like, she didn't play Takeover that day. She played Super Ugly. 
It's also worth noting that Nas released Ether on December 4th, 2001, Jay-Z's 32nd birthday. Sticking with the idea of dates and times, Sean Sotario, associate editor at Complex, laments further on how long it took for the contact to unravel. He also admits that this staggered approach wouldn't be possible in today's you've got 24 hours to respond climate. Looking back now, it's impossible to think of a beef lasting this long and having so long in between chapters, just months between, you know, the thing happening at Summer Jam and then Takeover coming out. The Takeover coming out and then Ether coming out. And, you know, I think Super Ugly was pretty quick, but, you know, there's still, you know, weeks and months between these chapters. The blueprint opens up with the Bink produced The Rulers Back, which this podcast series is named after. The track contains a sample of If by Jackie Moore. Bink's production is like the soundtrack of the impending arrival of an omnipotent deity on horseback. In a 2009 interview with XXL magazine, Bink revealed that he originally produced the beat for The Rulers Back at Bad Boy Records with the late Black Rob or Loon in mind. The disc that had the original beat got corrupted, so he headed back to Daddy's House studio, found the record and made the beat again. Carl Lamar talks about Bink's production on The Rulers Back and how it sets the stage for the blueprint listening experience. First thing we think about is, is Kanye West. We, we, we think about uh, Just Blaze, but the rule is that that set the tempo for the fucking album. I love that Bink did the, 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 the intro and the outro just to remind you guys, like I, my fingerprints are on this motherfucker, too. You know, my handprints are on this shit, too. And again, flawless execution, because without the rule is back, I can't say the album would be to me a 10 out of 10 because you you go into the rulers back and then you segue into the um, takeover. Like I'm all about song transition and the song transition on the album is what really elevated it to make it such a, such an opus for whole. So yeah, shout out to Bink for, for, for the intro outro. Yemi Abiyade compares the rulers back to a religious experience that could only fit a King. It's the perfect intro to a rap album to where if you're an established artist or someone who's been gone for a long time, that's the kind of song you put first to mark your triumphant return. The horns, the production, his lyrics, like everything about it, the interpolation of Slick Rick, everything about it was just like holy. It was like righteous. It was, it was like, it was kingly. It was king stuff, really. While some producers rely on loops, Bink opted to take different parts of the Jackie Moore record and stitch it together like a patchwork quilt. Interestingly, he compares his production approach to an old episode of The Cosby Show. I call my style Gordon Gartrell. And I, and I, and I say that because um, it was an episode where um, Theo wanted to go to the prom. And it was this expensive shirt called a Gordon Gartrell that his dad went back for him and Denise told him she could remake it for him. And she sold that shirt and remember the collar was too big and but it was just her way of cutting it up because when you really do the research on the records from blueprint even the sample from the rulers back it's not a loop it's not that it's me taking a piece from here piece from there and then stitching it together to make it make sense sean sataria suggests that the rulers back is a direct response to nas's stillmatic freestyle in the same way that Nas threw jabs and hooks Jay-Z's way by playing on the names of Rockefeller artists, Jay-Z does the same thing on The Ruler's Back. 
However, Jay-Z's roll call is to position his troops in an army-like formation. So, you know, Nas had done the the thing playing on Rockefeller rappers' names in his stillmatic freestyle. And Jay then answers it on the album's opening track, right? With like Beans, Bleak, Real, Emil, Pharrell, like this whole run of stuff sort of poking at Nas using that same device. You got a couple of beans and you don't have a clue. The situation is I'm gonna keep it real cuz fucking with me. You got to drop a milk cuz if you're gonna cop something you got to cop for real. The Blueprint's fourth song is Girls Girls Girls. The track samples is Nothing in this world that can stop me from loving you by Tom Brock and Higher Power Rap performed by Cash Crew. Throughout the song Jay-Z playfully describes the women who consensually indulge in his no-strings-attached lifestyle. Just Blaze talks about making the beat for Girls, Girls, Girls for Wu-Tang Clan's Ghostface Killer. He also divulges that he submitted the beat for The Blueprint because of the soulful production on the album's other tracks. Just Blaze also outlines how The Blueprint and this song is a nod to hip-hop history with features by Slick Rick, Q-Tip and the late great Biz Markey. The energy that we were coming with at the time was just so soulful. And also at the time, I didn't, I have a great relationship with Ghost now. At the time, I didn't, I didn't even know Ghost. I was just, you know, a fan. You know what I mean? So, and sometimes as a producer, you do that. You make, you make records or you, you make beats or you, you write songs with the idea of somebody in mind, you know, with the idea that maybe one day you'll be able to get it to them. Um, but we were in such a soulful lane as the album was developing. I came across it in a hard drive and I was like, no, we have to do this record, you know, and, and Jay heard it and was, and immediately went right to it. Again, it all happened in three days. The most interesting fact about girls, 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 you know, it's like after us having gone through the shiny suit era and different eras of keyboard beats and synth beats and whatnot, like here we are now with this super soulful cut and we're bringing in Q-Tip, Slick Rick, and Biz, rest in peace, to jump on the record because it just felt like, it felt like hip hop. You know what I mean? So it was cool to not only have this mustache, but to also have the opportunity to, to put out as a single because it was very much the antithesis of a lot of what was happening in hip hop at the time. The video shoot for Girls, Girls, Girls took place in LA on September 11th, 2001 the same day as the Blueprint's release and the terrorist attacks on the World Trade Center. The wild thing about it is the video was supposed to be shot on September 11th because they were shooting in L.A. and everybody was supposed to be flying to L.A. that day. Had it been scheduled for September 9th, 10th, whatever, you know, we could have seen a very different video for that record because the events of that day changed the trajectory of what, you know, had to be done to shoot it. Tandy Sabanda, UK-based music and culture writer, loves girls, 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 but also recognises that it could be considered offensive by today's standards. Girls, girls, girls would not, like, it would not live in this day and era, but the lyrics are just so wavy. The music video, absolutely amazing. Excuse me, Miss Fufu, but when I met your ass, you was dead, broken, naked, and now you want half. Bruh. Jigger That Nigga is the fifth song on the blueprint and is produced by Trackmasters. For the narcoleptic sleeping on Hove, this track wakes them up and reminds them of who he is with three verses of epic flexing. 
In a 2012 interview with Complex, Tone of the Trackmasters revealed that the beat was made initially for MC Light. The song is notable for being one of the few tracks on the blueprint without any samples. Blueprint's sixth song, You Don't Know, finds Jay-Z embodying the hustler spirit that took him from the streets to the boardrooms. Just Blaze's production is an onslaught on the senses. The song samples I'm Not To Blame by Bobby Bird. Just Blaze manipulates the sounds to feel as though Jay-Z is marching towards the gates of hell with souls in the lake of fire screaming as the vocal sample. You Don't Know is Mickey Halleback's favourite Just Blaze beat and he shares why he revels in its nostalgic energy. As much as like Hove's bars are amazing because I have like such a specific tie to the sampling of the album overall on some level, the samplings really influence my tracks that I feel nostalgic about and feel like such a connection to. So like it would be impossible for me to not mention maybe the best just blaze beat of all time. And you don't know. Turn my music high, 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 high. And that is like the epitome of feeling that kind of momentous energy of a Just Blaze beat. And then Hove just absolutely floats on that song. But it's just like such a core part of the album because Blueprint is such a momentous album to him that I feel like that is such an inherent core to the piece. Just Blaze reveals that the song was a workout ritual of sorts for Jay-Z and he added pieces to it over time until it became a complete song. If you, if you notice with You Don't Know, there's a start and stop, start and stop with his rhymes. And the reason that is, is because he did the record or he did the first verse and then he left it there. And then what he would do is every, every day he would come in to refine or work on a new idea. That was like his gym music. So he would listen to that every day, add another eight to 16 bars, then pull up the next record. Then the next day, come back, add another eight bars and go on to the next record. So that's basically the record that would get him hyped to record every day, which is why it starts and stops, but goes on for as long as it does, because he would just keep thinking of more rhymes, add them and then move on to the next thing. Yemi Abiyade likens the wordplay on You Don't Know to time travel. I'm from the streets where the hood could swallow him and bullets will follow him. And there's so much coke that you can run the slalom and cops comb the shit top to bottom. And then it goes down to like, the coke price is up and down like it's Wall Street homes, but this is worse than the Dow Jones. Your brains are now blown. Like the artistry and the fact that he just keeps that tight flow, you know what I'm saying? The tight delivery. And it goes amazing against the drum patterns of the beat. It's like once you close your eyes and listen to the beat and you listen to the lyrics, you go to Bad Style, you go to Marcy. I love hip hop like that. Hip hop that can transport me to where this guy is from, the kind of picture that they're painting and putting me in the heart of the action. That's what I love about those sort of songs. Nicholas Tyro Scott remembers that Jay-Z grew up in New York during the crack cocaine epidemic. He also highlights how Jay-Z brings these experiences to the forefront to remind the listener about where he came from. I think it's indicative of his and loads of rappers. I think it just reflects hip hop, you know, the crack epidemic of the 80s and everything. And, and we all know how politics affected that caused a lot of black people to try and up their social capital and their social class by 
turning to drugs to, you know, buy luxury items to help their mom, to help their dad, to help their family unit. He kind of just highlights, you know, that's the difference. I'm not going to stay in the hood. Obviously, I work the hood. I am one of the best sellers on the hood. I am one of the most marketable on the hood. But I smartened up. I patterned up. Jaina Jefferson cites how Jay-Z speaks truth to power with his declaration, I will not lose. She remains inspired by Jay-Z's ironclad will to continue to succeed despite the circumstances. So simple, but so effective and so resonant. When he says, I will not lose ever, and you don't know, it's basically the most enduring line in his entire catalog to me because he continues to keep winning. Uh, The song details his rise and it talks about his evolution, his growth and wealth, his business acumen, how he's become a business person. He's not on the block. He's in the boardrooms and he's in these conversations with these high profile business people. And this was just the beginning of that for him, but he continues to show that he really is that person. So I will not lose ever has continued to be very, very important. I think to Jay-Z's entire catalog. Will not lose ever. The Timberland produced Hola Havito is the Blueprint's seventh song. For 4 minutes and 33 seconds, Jay-Z playfully chastises mere mortals for being subpar with the source. Sean Sotaro breaks down why it's his favourite song on the album and how he even used it for an audition. I have to say, maybe my my single favourite beat is oddly not one of the soul samples. It's uh, Hola Jovito, which a lot of people kind of shit on that record. I love it. I love the bounce to it. I will say that one of the many jobs I've had in my life has been, uh, teaching SAT prep classes. Right. And so to audition for that job, you have to give a lecture about something. It doesn't matter what you just need to get in front of people and lecture about something. And I remember for my audition, I used Polo Vito as an example because of the swung 16th hi-hats. Uh, so that's always been a favorite of mine for, you know, for a very long time. Yemi Abiyade reflects on Jay-Z and Timberland's long-standing chemistry, which dates back to the late 90s. He also highlights the extended rhyme scheme in the opening of the song's third verse. I feel like when Jay and Timberland get together, you know what I mean, they haven't, hit, they haven't missed once. The instrumentation of that tune, the flexing from, from you know, the part, the part where he gets the y'all motherfuckers and he just carries on that rhyme scheme. Nah, motherfuckers. Y'all motherfuckers better run into post office and get a job, motherfuckers. A star, motherfuckers. Cause Jay's been the only one. Everything about that tune is just so like perfect. A lot of this album is just Jay's just hitting, hitting, hitting. It's like he's Giannis and the compo, and he's just he's just dunking, and he's hitting every time, every time. And Hola Jovito is just another example of that. On the next episode of The Rulers Back, it was only about two years ago as I'm reviewing the files that went through baseline. And I was looking for something and I found something that said MJ girls vocals. I'm sitting there in my studio said, oh my God, that did happen. It's there. I have it. This series is produced by Breaking Atoms and is mixed and mastered by Dave Walker. To stay in the loop and receive the episodes as soon as they drop, follow and subscribe to Breaking Atoms or search for Breaking Atoms wherever you listen to your podcasts. 